wonder if you've also found yourself spending too much money on unusual things and whether it also started for you around the spring of 2020. My name's Will and I developed an oyster habit, if you like, uh, as a way to treat myself during the never-ending spring of 2020. And now I'm, I'm probably more oyster than man. In the depths of lockdown, Will developed a new habit. He would ride his bike down to the fishmongers, get six shucked oysters, and then eat them on a park bench. And it just became this weird, like, kind of self-flagellating behavior of, like, knocking them back and then just putting the, the box, the icy box, in the bin, unlocking my bike and cycling home, and that was it. I think I can still get joy out of them, but that situation is somewhat joyless. Will has developed something that my colleague Imogen West Knights has deemed treat brain. It's gotten pretty bad. So bad, actually, that he's talking about it with us. I really should say to you that I'm ashamed, but I'm actually in conversation with you on the topic of oysters for the Financial Times podcast. Clearly, the battle between my shame and my narcissism has been called in favor of my narcissism. I'm oyster boy, apparently. Hello and welcome to our fourth episode. This weekend, we explore who we are and who we were and what has changed for us over this year and a half. We also consider if we want to look back and how much time has to pass before we can bear to. This is FT Weekend, the podcast. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. So, back to treat brain. I guess I define it like indulgent behavior without a stop on it or like the pursuit of pleasure without limit at a different level of limit than you used to have at least that's imogen west knights she's a writer will the oyster guy he's her friend certainly my threshold for like what is an acceptable level of treats to give myself <laughs> has changed drastically imogen wrote a piece about treat brain for the ft weekend magazine just recently i've put it in the show notes she first realized she had it as she was talking through her strange pandemic purchases with a friend. When she posted about it on social media, she realized from an outlandish influx of responses, including from Will, that she wasn't alone. To learn more about this mindset, she called up a behavioral scientist. His name was Paul Dolan. So he was kind of telling me that behavioral science at a basic level is actually pretty common sense. It's like People do certain things because they are easy to do. And if they're easy to do, then you'll create a habit out of them and then your brain just automates that behavior. So your brain needs to make thousands and thousands of decisions every day, be that, you know, what will I have for breakfast? How will I get to work or to this party? Or even like, what direction will I turn on the street when I'm trying to dodge around people? And so your brain tries to limit the amount of brain power you have to spend on doing that kind of thing by automating things. So you just have the same thing for breakfast or have a you know set routine of a way that you do things. And that is the danger with something like lockdown is you take away all the triggers in your environment that used to prompt certain habits. And then all these new habits can kind of crowd in and you don't necessarily have a huge amount of control over what those new habits are if you're kind of spiraling and living in a pandemic. At one point in her conversation with Dolan about these new habits, he encouraged her to suspend criticism because constantly judging the way you live can prevent happiness. Imogen was telling him about eating too much or staying up too late, and he stopped her. Here's the tape. You see what you've done there again. You see, you've added, uh, just naturally, you've added 
too much money yeah, yeah. to stay out too late. You've had the clue bit, you've made a judgment about it being too much. Yeah. When actually maybe all of what you did before was too little. Yeah, yeah. What did you think hearing that? Yeah, he really pulled me up there and, and it, he was right. I was playing into the exact kind of old narratives that I wanted to try and get away from. But that it is the way that we talk about things always. It's like, oh, you know, I, I overindulged rather than just I indulged. Yeah. One thing I noticed in the pandemic is that a lot of people's bodies changed, their weight changed. I think a lot of women kind of coming to a newfound relationship with their bodies. And I found that... Um, refreshing in some ways yeah it's difficult to generalize Mm. so I've sort of struggled with disordered eating to a degree for a long period like many women have and well not just women but it is often women I think you're right to emphasize that it has been an element in it has been gender I think with people's bodies changing Mm -hmm. but yeah I suddenly decided that it had to change because my body was changing. The goal has to be to enjoy your life, not to be thin. Yeah. And yeah, I would not say that I'm cured because it's never that simple, but that is, it has changed what I want my mindset to be. And I want my mindset to be the greatest pleasures in life are for me anyway, like eating with my friends and my family. And if I'm going to deprive myself of that forever, then like, what kind of a life is that? Is it worth asking if what the takeaways are that might be negative, like what we could learn to be careful about? I spoke to someone that I didn't actually mention in the piece just because it, it kind of opened a door that was too complex to get into properly. But someone who began um, taking drugs more recreationally during the pandemic and initially was like, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. I'm just trying to get through the day. It's not affecting my life too much and now has found herself really struggling to maintain her normal life. Mm. I mean, she's she's developed a drug addiction. And I think it is quite easy for indulgent behavior to slip into something genuinely destructive. Yeah. You're going to hear a newspaper crinkle because I read this in print. Um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> it looked beautiful. Um, but there was this quote from Dolan um, when he spoke with him where he said, we have all these narratives about the lives that we think we should be leading, and oftentimes they'll get in the way of people leading happy lives. I think as we get more used to life being a little bit more normal post the lockdowns, the treat brain, it's it feels less kind of crazed, but I don't, yeah, I really don't want to just let that go, that mindset of trying to pursue pleasure instead of atoning for it, because I do just think that life's for living, but just being a bit more forgiving and a bit more loose about the way that I behave. So what were the sorts of things when you, it feels like a diagnosis and I don't mean to suggest that it <laughs> yeah. is, but, but what sort of what, once you kind of diagnosed yourself with treat brain, what were the things that sort of fell under that diagnosis? Right. Yeah. So for me, I mean, it was pretty wide ranging for me. It was, st- I mean, it was obviously it was food. So I ate a lot of takeaways, ate a lot of pizza, ate a lot of kind of specialty chocolate and like wine that I would otherwise have thought was too expensive and now I'm really into. I also bought so much skincare stuff. I just like, why? I don't even think it's changed my skin. Oh, yeah. I really, I to- <laughs> truly believe that my skin has not changed at all. And I've spent 
maybe $200. It's fun to put on, though. It sure is, yeah. Nothing like a really extensive, very long (laughs) ritual that's for no one but yourself. Um, I started using those rollers, like I went down one of those. Um, Oh, you got one of those. Yeah, and you know there's another kind that's not like a roller. It's like a jade stone. Yeah, the jade stone. It's a jade stone. stone. Yeah, yeah, and my friend swears by them, and there's like no um, proof that they do anything um, to your skin. But it's supposed to like build the... Uh, Who knows what it's supposed to build. (laughs) I can't even keep track. But I have one, and... um, and I use it. <laughs> Why not rub a jade egg on your face? Why not? <laughs> Lockdown is not a memory in which many of us like to dwell. That especially goes for my colleague, Janan Ganesh. Janan is a longtime FT columnist who writes a weekly column on politics and a weekend column called Citizen of Nowhere on, well, technically everything. It can be hard to describe Janan's writing, which is very distinctive. So I asked some colleagues. That's that's tricky. I, I mean, it's a counterintuitive take on, on the world. I mean, he's a very sort of beady observer of modern life. He is, I think for me, the sort of equivalent of the Financial Times' sort of weekend flaneur, sort of observes what's going on in the world and casts his very erudite and sometimes controversial opinions about them. He really is a stylist. And I guess he's not afraid to... Um, with challenging uh, opinions such as last week's uh, last week's column in which she tore into uh, pet owners, basically laying into cats and dogs. I called Janan at his home in Washington, D.C. to talk about everything he learned in lockdown. Or didn't. I've had precisely zero revelations, and I've been spiritually altered to no extent whatsoever. Janan wrote a column recently I found really interesting. It challenged the idea that the lockdown made all of us want to radically change our lifestyles. I've spent the past 18 months reading features and columns by people who seem to have been transformed. And the transformation is always in the direction that is against the modern world. So people want a slightly more green and rural existence. They want a slower pace of life. Maybe they've revised their opinion about how much socializing they want Mm -hmm. to do. And I, maybe one or two of my friends as well, have experienced none of that. The only revelation I've had, really, is just the sheer absence of revelation. What were the stories that you were hearing that really made you think, well, this is different than my experience? Well, the, the most obvious one is the number of people who have claimed to want to leave the big cities and live in the countryside or live by the coast. That began immediately, as soon as the lockdown began and home working began. But then it widened into something that I find much harder to understand, which is a newfound aversion to social life generally. They've actually been turned off the idea of massed humanity. And for me, that's half the point of being alive. Janan wanted to clarify that there's a difference between being affected by the lockdown and affected by the pandemic as a whole. It would be perverse if you could live through that kind of public health disaster, that many casualties, without emerging from it with, you know, a sense of how vulnerable life is and how precious some professions are compared to my relatively uh, frivolous occupation. What I don't get is being transformed by the lockdown. Mm. I don't think it has any great spiritual content to it. I liked your point that the idea that the lockdown has changed us in some astounding way is kind of privileged. You said that 
What started as twee hijinks about banana bread became a sour reappraisal of modernity by its principal winners, the educated, the urban, the mobile. And it's true. There was a, you said there's a Times reader who said that the lockdown was middle class people hiding and working class people bringing them things. I am one of the worst examples of it, by the way. You know, I've been living off deliveries and Amazon mm. and I've had a pretty, pretty comfortable time, I really have to say. And it's all because of people who are on the minimum wage or very close to it. Um, who've had no lockdown at all, remember, they've had to work through the past 18 months. And I am very reluctant to listen to someone who has benefited from that, saying that it's it's a viable way of living going forward. I grew up with a lot of people who did not have that opportunity to live a life of leisure and have stuff delivered to them. And I, I imagine amongst that group of people, I imagine there's slightly less of this soulful meditation on how much they've learned from the lockdown and how it's going to make them earth mothers and earth fathers, you know, going forward. I found it interesting that you called it anti-modern. People will talk about a big dynamic city and huge amounts of economic growth as suspect. They'll say things like, you know, weren't we happier before the industrialized society? Mm. I think it's, it's what happens when a country has been too rich for too long. You just become complacent about what got you there. And you start playing frivolously with the idea of an agrarian, pre-modern society of stable communities, minimal social disruption. When we had that world, it wasn't one-tenth as pleasant as we now imagine. I mean, not only was there no plumbing, but there also, you know, women had one role. (laughs) It was a very different world. Exactly. Everything we take for granted is a product of the past, I don't know, 50 years, whether it's women in the workplace or basic sanitation, fridges. I wonder about the impulse even by a modern person to look to things like astrology, to feel like the virus came to teach us something, to like kind of believe in this mystical idea of it. It sounds like you think that that's dangerous, and I I agree in some ways it is. But also it's maybe there's something comforting to people about the idea that there's stuff we don't know, and there isn't like a very um, tangible answer. And I wonder if that's all bad. Like, even if the virus didn't come to teach us something, it did teach us something. And if that's how they frame it, maybe that's okay. Yeah, I mean, that's why a lot of spiritualism exists. People don't like the idea of randomness being the force that governs life. They want there to be a meaning. They don't have to understand the meaning, but they want there to be some kind of organizing principle some kind of natural justice. And it does soothe people and give them a sense of structure in a world that they probably suspect deep down is meaningless and and random. And I've got no problem with them believing that or even espousing that. What I have a problem with is government policy in the coming years being shaped by those preferences. So the whole of society becomes less inclined or finds it less easy to travel, to go out, to turn up to an office, I'm curious, Janine, like big picture, how you think future us in 10, 20 years time are going to remember lockdown as like a cultural event. My strong, strong suspicion is that we won't remember it. We won't talk about it. You have to remember that within a generation of World War II, which was incomparably more serious and deadly and traumatic, within a generation of that, you had Elvis, you had the sexual revolution of the 60s. You had a huge swathe of kind of social reform legislation. I don't think people were walking around in the 60s 
still marked by what was a profoundly more serious event. Mm. The human capacity to forget is so underrated. Mm. And I think within a, not, not even within a generation, within 10 years, that it just won't be present in the atmosphere as a subject of conversation. As far as how art will depict lockdown, Janan hopes, well, he kind of hopes it won't. Got a friend who's a gallery owner in London, and he says a lot of the artists in London or in Western Europe are making the mistake of producing art that explicitly references what has gone on over the past year. And he mm. thinks, I think correctly, that the market is just not going to be interested in that for longer than like the next few months. So even creatively, it'd be interesting to see whether Hollywood produces lots of pandemic films, whether musicians produce lots of pandemic referencing lyrics. I have a strong suspicion that the smart ones will avoid it and recognize that we just kind of want to move on. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about that, too. There's this show, Betty, on HBO about these teenagers who are going around New York on skateboards. And, and like, sometimes they're wearing their masks, sometimes they're not. It just, like, kind of exists in the world. And that's interesting. It's a reminder that it happened, and there's something to that. But But actually, talking through why anything that really gets into it, I'm like, I just want to turn my mind off. Completely. No, that's right. I think the, the proper way of doing it creatively is by letting it seep out through little references and flashes here and there. If anything, the people who will be interested will be much, much further in the future where they, you know, they become curious about it. But for the foreseeable decade or so, I think the overwhelming appetite, and this is the kind of roaring 20s thesis, the overwhelming public appetite, I think, will be to draw a line. Janan, thank you so much for joining me. That's okay. This idea from Janan that maybe a hundred years in the future, people will want to look back at now, curious because enough time had passed, that history is more bearable and can even become enchanting over time. It reminded me of this beautiful escape read that I just needed to bring into your ears. Final call for boarding of the Orient Express. We end this episode rolling out of Paris on the most glamorous train in the world, the Orient Express. As you pull out of Gare de l'Est quite slowly, you're passing walls of graffiti and you're just kind of seeing the landscape metamorphose from deeply urban to eventually rural. And you've got your caviar and champagne and then eventually somebody comes and knocks on your door and says, you know, at any point, please do join us in the bar car. Maria Schollenbarger is the contributing travel editor at How to Spend It. Her job is to travel all over the world, visiting some of the most luxurious and exciting places, and then writing about them for the FT. It's not a bad lifestyle. In July of this year, she took the Venice Simplon Orient Express train from Paris to Venice, just after it reopened. I've put her piece in the show notes. This is no ordinary train. This is the legendary Orient Express. Witness to many strange adventures and You put your high heels on and your feather boa or whatever it is you decided to bring. I sort of went for the menswear tuxedo thing, which is more my jam, but with a very high pair of heels, which, by the way, I absolutely do not recall how to navigate in. Everybody's banging into walls and kind of making your way to the bar car. And then there's a there's an actual full-size piano in there and a guy playing the piano and singing and huge potted palms 
full liveried barmen and your porters walking around individually serving drinks. I mean, the charm was 100% intact. That charm has inspired everyone from Bram Stoker to Graham Greene to Ian Fleming. It also comes with a price tag. One night traveling between Paris and Venice costs upwards of 3,000 euros per person. I spoke to Maria about what it was like to travel on the train and also about what luxury means today. So let's go back a little. I mean, can you tell me about the background of the Orient Express? What's sort of the history of the train? The train was founded, I think, under a different version of the name more than 100 years ago, towards the end of the 1800s. And then in its most kind of current iteration, called the Venice Simplon Orient Express. At 7.30 tout à l'heure, le train qui arrive de Paris, de Venise, de Zagreb, le Simplon Orient Express va faire son entrée en gare de Belgrade. Which did originally go from Paris to Istanbul, I think, and then from London to Istanbul via a partner train. It's sort of by the, the late teens coming out of World War I, it was close to what it is today. And obviously they would have to replace cars on the train every once in a while, but in the existing train that I took... Every car dates from, I think, before the late 30s. They're all from the 20s and 30s. Wow. And what's beautiful about them is there's a lot of artisanship in the actual cars themselves, marquetry and inlay and mother of pearl and original paintings and really, really beautiful textiles that they went to great lengths to have reproduced as the originals looked. The inside of the train, as Maria describes it, is full of silk and marble and velvet and Venetian glass. She said that one whole carriage was designed by René Lalique, the iconic French glass designer. He helped start the Art Deco movement. Another carriage used to be a brothel in the Second World War. Another was one of the train cars that got trapped in a blizzard under meters of snow for days, which inspired Agatha Christie's novel Murder on the Orient Express. Every room is a mini museum. I asked her what the bedrooms were like. They are really like tiny little hotel suites on wheels. The entry-level accommodation on the train is a cabin with bunks that has a little tiny washroom and a little tiny bar. And then there are these six suites where you have your own entire sitting area with a little work area, and you've got a queen-size bed, and you have a full bathroom with a shower and sort of marble tile on the floor. And there's this very groovy, old-fashioned flush toilet that's varnished wood with brass fittings. It's a real upgrade from the Amtrak, which is the train that I'm used to taking, <laughs> uh, which has like, um, yeah, microwave top dogs. Talking to Maria, it seemed a bit like fantasy. All these passengers inside old cabins, dressed up in black tie, on this train moving at the same speed as it would have moved 100 years ago. Where it really started to feel like a real experience that was timeless was when the sun was well gone and we were kind of starting to go through the Alps. There's not a whole lot around. You're listening to the sound of the wheels. You're feeling the rhythm of it. And what I thought was really enchanting was seeing that there are discrete, distinct European cultures still. There are discrete European landscapes and you were passing through them kind of at the speed of old time. You know, you thought, oh, right now I'm looking at the the Parc de Forêt in France, and this is kind of a, a typical central French landscape, and look at the architecture, and then, oh, look, I've got some half-timbered houses happening, and the mountains are getting taller, and everything is a little bit more, you know, gemütlich. I'm curious about the other people with you, so the other passengers. Did they all sort of look the part, too? Did they all sort of play the game? Was anybody sort of 
decidedly not and wearing jeans. <laughs> no, there was totally no like Zuckerberg hoodie flip flop thing <laughs> happening. I think that would have been nobody wants to let the team down that way. I think nobody wants to be that person. There was a very, very lovely sort of probably 60 something English couple who had brought his mother on the train to celebrate, I think it was her 85th birthday. And I sat across from them at supper. And I mean, the smile, she was just radiant the entire time. Mm. And then there was a very glamorous young Russian couple. I mean, she looked like she should have been at the Met Ball. She looked really incredible, put us all a bit in the shade. But then that was really pleasurable too, that somebody <laughs> was that fabulous. That just adds to the patina and the allure of the experience. What is your kind of bigger picture takeaway as someone who's done so much writing about travel and luxury? Like, where does this Orient Express experience fit into the time we're living in and the way we think about travel? What I've understood about these conversations is the idea of luxury is really being interrogated right now. But there is room somewhere for the idea without it being really decadent or really obnoxious. To many, many, many people, the prices associated with this trip will seem obscene, but it is a very authentic way to experience mm. European culture. There are many moments on that train when you feel mm. like this is the exact precise experience that somebody would have had on this train 80, 90 years ago. That's the episode. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Next weekend, we'll be talking to the philosopher Julian Bagini on whether we should purge our bookshelves. We'll also get behind the scenes with Universal Music CEO Lucian Grange. He's the most powerful executive in the music industry and maybe the last standing old school mogul in the business. If you like this week's conversation about processing lockdown, I spoke with Esther Perel live on the Financial Times' Instagram account on Thursday about just that. There's a link to that in the show notes. Please subscribe and tell a few friends or let your people know on Twitter or on Instagram or leave us a review. These are all things that really help people find the show. I'd also love to hear from you. Specifically, I'd really like to know what you're reading, watching, or eating, or doing that's making you really happy. What are you obsessed with right now? Write us or record and send us a voice note, and we may use your responses in a future episode. You can email me at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. Links to everything mentioned are always in the show notes of the episode, and you can also find a special offer there for an FT Weekend subscription. We've got a discount. It's also at ft.com slash weekendpodcast. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. George Drake Jr. is our senior producer. Lulu Smith and Josh Gabbert-Doyen are our assistant producers. And Breen Turner is our sound engineer with original music by Metaphor Music. Cheryl Brumley and Manuela Saragosa are our executive producers. And we had editorial direction from Renee Kaplan. We'll meet here again next week.
Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.